Thank you so much for being on my podcast, Mr. Sung. Great to be here. Thank you. So how exactly did you get onto the journey of being a value investor? Well, I uh, developed my interest in the market when I was about 11, 12 years old. Um, and I've had some ups and downs and then, since then. When I was 11, um, it was the year 2007. Uh, okay. And um, I have a huge, I had a huge interest in the market and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, so here in Denmark, it's a very Christian um, uh, tradition to have confirmation. Do you know about that? No. Nope. It's a Baptist creation. Ah. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like a bar mitzvah or, and here in Denmark, we have this huge ceremony when someone has a confirmation, just like a wedding ceremony and a bar mitzvah. Um, so I told my parents that uh, I wanted to uh, throw no party at my confirmation. I just wanted the money <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to invest in the market so badly. Um, and as I said, that was the year 2007 and it, hey. it just uh, went downhill from there. So I lost like 60% of my money, the money I got from having no party <laughs> for my confirmation. I mean, at some time. So that, was a, uh, that, was a, that was a great learning experience to get into the market, right? Right. And then I've dabbed with a few other things since then. I started trading, you know, uh, penny stock scams and OTC stocks. And, uh, you know, I always had the, uh, I always had the, um, the philosophy that, uh, of, you know, uh, Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, that kind of, that kind of thing. But I wanted to, to, uh, try some other things, uh, in the meantime, while I was learning and I was young. So that's why I started trading. I started shorting these, you know, penny stocks and, and not just penny stocks, but also uh, small cap Nasdaq stocks and basically things that are pumped up by pump and dumpers. Um, and that, that didn't go well. I was a short seller. And uh, as you know, in the market, you're always too early. You know, like, like Manish Pabrai says, he's about 20, 30% early all the time. Every time he goes long. And if you're a short seller, being early is just... Terrible. It's 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 kind of a ridiculous uh, endeavor, to be honest, <laughs> to go short something. The 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 odds of uh, and the risk the risk rewards is just uh, it's ridiculous. So uh, that was a a learning experience for me as well. I lost a lot of money, so I had two two uh, learning experiences of losing a lot of money early in my life. I mean, it was some timing, you know. He went along on the market right before the Great Recession. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's, uh, but, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's great that you have these experience early in your life. Right. Uh, when, when the cabinet is small. <laughs> so like, so uh, I started. So what was started, your first investment ever? It was in a Danish company, a Danish biotech company called Turbo Target. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and biotech company was probably the worst sector at that time here in Denmark, as well, I, I believe. The, bio- the biotech sector is very large in Denmark. So everyone was invested in in, uh, in these kind of stocks, but Top Target was a uh, a small cap uh, biotech company. I knew nothing about it. It was a uh, recommendation from my dad, who lost a lot of money as well. <laughs> and uh, and that was my first investment. Didn't go well. Oh, my. And after I had these uh, these bad experiences of trading and and um, and investing right into the Great Recession, I started kind of from scratch, and I had the right philosophy and. Uh, I started going more deeply into uh, to learning about accounting and, and stuff like that, and uh, made some 
good investment since. <laughs> so but, when uh, did you? So when did you discover Ben Graham or Warren Buffett? And when did you like? You know, when, you know I actually read the. Uh, I actually read the Intent Investor when I was twelve years old. Mm-hmm. I was new that it was the right thing, that that's the right philosophy. You know, buying uh, something for a dollar for less than a dollar is just it's just logical. It's the you know value investing is intelligent investing. Um, but I, I I didn't know the uh, the importance of it before experiencing these kind of experiencing these kind of things. Right. Um, so uh, got me on the right track. You can call that. So I decided to uh, to learn about investing by becoming a businessman instead. So I started a jewelry company with my uh, girlfriend. We pulled together two thousand, uh, about two thousand US dollars in a in a corporation. You know, a uh, a uh, it was a uh, it still is a direct to consumer jewelry mm-hmm. business, and uh, and that's probably the best investment I made. So now we are we are turning over about uh, five to six hundred thousand uh, US dollars. A year yeah. on a on a two thousand dollar investment and almost no reinvestment. So that was my best investment. It's great. <laughs> and it's done. Wonderful. It's maybe learn a lot about uh, business, so you can uh, turn that over into investing in stocks. It's, it's I can recommend it. Did you buy anything during the recession? Back in two thousand eight. Not during the recession, because uh, when you, when you invest at the top of the at the top of the market and you see the market crash and you kind of freeze <laughs> and uh, and i was kind of like 100 percent invested at that time yeah and i was young so uh, i didn't have any money to uh, to throw at a, a falling market and that's a shame so could you give the audience like an explanation of your personal investment philosophy and what you look for in a stock before investing in it my personal investment philosophy is um is to know what is knowable and to dismiss what is what is not unknowable. So I take a hundred percent bottom-up basis in my investment process. I don't care about macros. Macros are obviously very important, uh, and the interest rate is is gravity for the market. Um, but you can't know it, so I don't think about it. I think I think about uh, companies on a bottom-up basis. Think about the competitors, the industry, and uh, and it's basically just a matter of uh, of, uh, of finding the intrinsic value of individual businesses, what know what you know what's in within your circle of competence and uh, stuff like that, and and how you define risk. Uh, like uh, like Seth Klarman, I don't define risk as, as volatility. I, volatility, I define that business risk, reputational risk, permanent risk, uh, permanent loss of capital, and and that kind of things. So, how do you so how but, do you like go about defining intrinsic value do you like run a dcf or i do run a dcf but it's on a very conservative basis one of the uh, things i got to mention i got to mention was that uh i try to be very unreasonable in what i find and when you're very unreasonable you kind of uh turn into a concentrated focus investor because you don't like a lot of things you dismiss 99 percent of things and um so my personal portfolio i want to have five stocks because I'm very unreasonable when I do a DCF or yeah, it's basically a DCF or an asset-based asset-based valuation. That's the kind of more conservative way to approach it, but uh, it's on a very conservative basis. So basically, you know, just give a really low growth rate and you know a high discount rate. Yeah, and I and I look at the boring stuff. 
How do you incorporate risk into your DCFs? I incorporate risk by, uh, you know, when I do a DCF, I, I don't uh, think much about discount rate. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I take what I think is, uh, is the uh, risk-free rate of the economies, and that's probably adding a, a percent of two to the current rate of the uh, of the treasure of the treasury rate um, and then I just kind of um, take what are the probability that I'm right in uh, in forecasting these cash flows that I'm forecasting in my in my DCF so I say maybe I'm you know I I, 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 I do these uh, forecastings of and on, uh, on cash flows and then I discount it back using the treasury rate and then I I'm, I ask myself how sure are I all right, and that these uh, cash flows are going to be realized. And if I'm 50% sure, I'm going to discount 50% of that value. So it's very subjective. <laughs> you know, I don't look at the market to, to determine the discount rate. I look at my, my own uh, confidence in forecasting these cash flows to determine my discount rate, right. if that makes sense. It does. I mean, no, it's a different way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, it's a different way of looking at it. But I also think it's the right way. What are the most? You know, if you if you if you were one hundred percent sure that you could could forecast the right. uh, the cash flows of a business, the the way to discount rate the, to discount it would be to take the risk free rate because right. you're one hundred percent sure. So it depends on how sure you are. Yeah, pretty much. What are the most interesting value investments you've ever made, or like the most interesting investment scenarios you've come across? You know, I would say my own my own jewelry company. <laughs> That's a given. Um, I did invest in Apple a few years ago. I sold way too soon, so that's probably the best investment I made. And uh, and in, in Coca Cola, you, you know, I, you asked me about uh, what kind of investments I made during the financial crisis. Coca Cola was one of them, but uh, it wasn't very low capital. Uh, obviously, it's been a kind of a boring, boring stock lately. But right. I invested at a great price. And so you know, boring businesses at, uh, at at great opportunities. That those are usually the best opportunities. So, when you say great businesses, how do you determine moats, or how do you categorize moats, and how do you go about finding them? Using uh, return on capital. I use I, I I spend almost all my time looking at return on capital. What capital needs to be in the business for this business to thrive or maintain its current uh, position. How did you determine the growth rate from that? Um, I'm very much into looking at historical rates. I'm not. I don't really like projecting anything that haven't had before. Um, so uh, you know, like Ben Graham said, you need to look ten years ten years back in uh, into the past to determine right. what you can expect of the future. Right. I mean. Uh, now, sometimes historical rates could be a lot higher than what they will be in the future. So don't you think that's a bit... Yeah, and that's true as well. So, so uh, you know, in a lot of DCFs, you, you see them look 10 to 20 years into the future and uh, just use the trajectory of the last 10 years. That's not the way I, I, I go about it. So how do you go about it? <laughs> I, I use very conservative assumptions. If, if, if it's a high growth company, I, I'm, I'm usually only projecting three to five years into the future. I never do right. that for, for 10 years. Right. Has there been, has there, uh, have you ever tried buying a value trap and you know, how do you go about figure, how do you go about figuring out the Definitely. from a value trap? 
A value trap I did buy was Deutsche Bank. It was about uh, four years ago. And a lot of people has gotten trapped in these European banks. And Deutsche Bank was probably the biggest value trap of them all. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think the reason why Deutsche Bank was such a big value trap because it was because you couldn't know what was really on the balance sheet. And uh, even though there was a path to profitability, I believe there still are, it still is, but um, but the risk is just too unknowable, and that's why it's a value trap. So it looks like they're going to turn turn it around, but uh, I doubt it's going. I doubt it's going to hit. The, it's going to affect the share price for for many years to come. It's it sucked in a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still long in Deutsche Bank? No, I'm not. <laughs> it's a good decision. I, uh, yeah, I lost. I lost a, a bit of money on that. And uh, how do you no, no, value traps are sorry value traps are uh, are very common in the current market. Right. I mean, even Ben Graham fell, you know, prey to value traps when he was an investor. Yeah. So how would you go yeah. about differentiating the real ones from the value traps? Yeah, that's that's the game. <laughs> <laughs> As a value investor, you, you never really know. I, I believe that what. What uh, what looks like a value investment, you know, deep value investment. You're seeing an asset based perspective. Right. Those are, are kind of the biggest value traps at the moment, and uh, I, I tend to avoid them. Those, you know, companies trading at at at, at 0 0.4, 0 0.5 of book value. Book value has become a very, very unreliable figure for determining the value of the company. I believe because the economy has moved so much from uh, what's tangible to what's intangible and what 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 drives value and what does not drive value. Right. What do you think it's of different times? What do you think of the whole scenario in China with the coronavirus? And are you looking at any value opportunities in China? Yeah, I'm very much looking at at, uh, at China. I'm, I've I've kind of been surprised how much the coronavirus have, uh, have has affected the market. Um, you know, we had this this huge panic in in two days, where the market fell seven percent, and then it's almost back to it's back to new 20, 2019 highs. The CSI three hundred index, that is. Um, but the Chinese markets are funny. You have these uh, you have this casino like mentality, like as Charlie Munger mentioned about the Chinese markets. There's the Chinese treat their market as a casino, basically. <laughs> You have these, uh, you have these very popular stocks that's just trading at very, very high multiples, and then you have value stocks that are uh, trading at very, very low multiples, and uh, some of them are value traps, some of them are not. But I'm very much looking into China. So, what do you make of the whole situation? Do you think it's going to majorly impact, say, other markets as well, or do you think it's going to stay to China? What's your opinion on it? I think that the market has learned. That uh, that that fear from these kind of things are aren't really important for the market. So I'm, I don't think it's gonna affect the market a lot. What do you think of the? No, we, we, right, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you know the, the market has experienced such so much uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, impending uh, world wars and uh, and other <laughs> epidemics and uh, and it's come back every time. So I think the markets have learned. What do you think of, you know, CNBC or like, you know, the other, uh, the other major media 
let's say that the coronavirus is going to highly uh, is going to majorly impact say oil prices it's going to impact like you know airline as an industry and other industries that uh, that might actually impact the us so for example you know there's going to be fewer flights that are taken to china and china is a major trade route and there's going to be you know a drop in global trade mm. from that because of the coronavirus do you see that as a major threat to uh the, to the global economy yeah, I try not to think about that too much because it's uh, it's it's one of the things that I, I mentioned before that's unknowable. I have no idea. <laughs> what do you think of the re uh, recent irrational exuberance in stocks like Tesla and Virgin Galactic? I think it's crazy. I just read this article in in Financial Times yesterday about uh, you know the subreddit on Reddit called Wall Street Bets. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's it's just crazy what's what's uh what's going on and how how a group of people can move and stuff like that i mean you know it's just people gambling <laughs> yeah it is and they're and they're, and and apparently when you have stuff like this like uh virgin galactic and and uh and flock and uh and tesla you have this 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 market, the market has changed into uh, fan bases being able to move markets. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I sit on the sidelines, but I'm, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I sit on the sidelines, but I don't, I don't participate in it. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever like jump in on bubbles, you know, like George Soros would do? No, no, I don't. I actually recently wrote a, a, a piece on my blog called the uh, short market corners and short squeezes. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it, but I'm into the, uh, he tests the short squeeze going on right now. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a historical thing. It's not once in a lifetime uh, occurrence. You know the false the false wagon uh, bubble was much bigger. So, do you say that again? The, the false wagon bubble happened uh, happening in in two thousand and seven oh. was a much bigger uh, yeah much bigger situation that what that was happening in Tesla right now. Do you think they were briefly the biggest company in the world? Right. Do you think we'd see a correction anytime soon in the markets or a recession anytime soon? I don't know if I don't know if it's soon, but obviously we're gonna have a recession. Right. I mean, you know, markets are. I but I have, I have no idea. <laughs> Market are markets are at all time highs, but uh, but. But that's not a, that's not a factor in when there is going to be a, a recession. Right. So I'm thinking about when I'm trying to time the market. <laughs> it's hurt a lot of people. It's it's even hurting me because I this this is a uh, this is a philosophy that I only adapted for about three to four four years ago in in 2014 and 2015. A lot of people was trying to time the market when the next recession was going to come, and now we're in 2020 and it hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> I mean. It's it's been the longest bull market in history now. Yeah. And maybe in the next one is going to be even longer. <laughs> now the family uh, the no, famous no. investor Stanley Druckenmiller has pointed out to say like to say that negative interest rates are basically not capitalistic anymore and you know countries like Denmark which offer like you know they pay you for taking a mortgage and yeah, be with negative interest rates right now. They don't really have a buffer against a recession. So Imagine a recession hits. How do you think the ECB and the various European banks are going to react? I think they're going to need to turn to other measures. Sorry? You know, I, I think that 
they're, they're going to need to turn to other measures than monetary policy. I think there's going to be a massive cooperation in in uh, in, in using fiscal policy to uh, to fight uh, another recession. It's going to be a problem, obviously. I mean, the quantity. I don't, re I don't really look much. at the. Yeah. So uh, I I think there's I think the risk is higher looking at Europe. So I don't invest in. Uh, I don't even have. I don't even have uh, Danish stocks Great. in my portfolio. So you don't have any Danish stocks in your portfolio. No, the market has been the market has been great, and uh, the market is great. It's a very developed market, um, but I'm not not really interested in it. Are you able it's to too high. like any value investments in this kind of market when it's you know at an all time high? Like at all? That's that's the difficult thing. Um, and anytime you you think you found a value investment, someone has has already thought about it. Uh, so there's, I'm flipping a lot of stones, but I don't find very, uh, very many opportunities. And so, yeah, you know, like Ben Graham said, uh, if you invest in stocks the way you buy, uh, buy uh, if you should invest in stocks the way you buy groceries and not the way you buy perfume. And uh, it feels like the market is just a giant Bloomingdale at the moment. <laughs> right. I mean, it's more like Whole Foods right now, you know, all the expensive. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, exactly. What do you think of, you know, there's the news about Donald Trump who might actually make a tax credit to Americans for actually owning stocks and the recent decisions by most of the major brokerage companies to wipe out commissions overall. Do you think this is a dangerous decision hmm. in the market? Because it now makes people gamble a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's increased the risk, but I don't know how much. No one knows, but it's it's definitely increased the risk. And do you think? And when you see subreddits like, and when you see stuff like the uh, as we talked about the Wall Street bets, the subreddit, <laughs> I think that's 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 one of the effects of uh, cutting trading fees to zero. <laughs> We're going to see a lot more gambling now. Yeah, we are. What do you think of, you know, when Ben Graham was around, there weren't as many algorithmic trading, high frequency hedge funds as there are today. So yeah, do you think the development of these new HFT hedge funds, which arbitrage out small opportunities, do you think the amount of risk that they add to the market is big? I don't know if, if the, you know, the, uh, I don't think the, the, what they do increases risk in the market. I think it, uh, it has diminished opportunity on a short-term basis, but I'm not a, a short-term investor, so I don't think it, it affects me. I think the way to have an edge in the market today is uh, is having a longer term than other participants. How are you able to keep your emotions in check in such a wildly raging bull market? You know, not getting in on the action, not getting in on bubbles like Tesla. How are you able to stay put? Um. You know, Buffett talks about uh, imagining when you buy a stock that the stock market is closed for the next two or three years. That's the way I go about it. I look at what the price is, is offered today and, and what I get in terms of business. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what the, and I don't care what the, what the quote says in, in, in two weeks or three months or, or anything like that. If I see a price that I like for the, for the piece of the business that I own at some point in the future, I'm going to take it.
And if, if, if it's not the price I like, then I'm not going to take it. I'm just going to hold on. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the way to, uh, and, and that's also a, a question I have in the longer term perspective. If you have a, a short term perspective, um, right. emotions are going to, are going to creep in, uh, creep up. I mean, most people in the market today, they do have a very short term perspective. They're focused on what happens in say the next week or the next month. And no, they just own options. Yeah, they do. Some kind of derivatives just to bet on some event like earnings. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that's? Uh, do you think that's? Uh, do you think the fundamental flaw in people's thinking of you know being extremely short term? Do you think that's gonna? Do you think it's dangerous, or do you think that just provides more opportunities for value investors? I think it's, it provides better opportunity. We haven't seen it yet for the last you know five years, but I think it's gonna provide opportunities in the future for for longer term value investors. You know, that brings it back to what are what are uh, investors' edge in the market today? There's no information edge mm-hmm. anymore. Anyone has uh, has all the information there is to know, basically. So the only edge you have in the market today is just having a longer term perspective and staying rational. I mean, the loss of the informational edge is pretty. I mean, it's pretty. Yeah. It's it's pretty like you know game changing and kind of levels the playing field out. Yeah. Right. If I want, uh, you know, right now there's the growing prevalence of China in the markets, and you know, there's predictions that China is going to, like, this century is going to be China's century. So, do you think it's a better idea to, you know, focus on emerging markets compared to developed markets as a whole? I mean, I know you're not a macro investor, but you know, just asking. Yeah, I I, I believe in, uh, in 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 fishing in the right pond, and I believe. Emerging markets and especially China is uh, are the right pawns to to look at at the moment. You know, as Charlie Munger says, the best companies in China at the moment are cheaper than the best companies in the U.S. I do look at the U.S., but uh, it's a matter of opportunities. How many opportunities are there? Are there any the stocks you're buying right now in China? I, I recently bought well, not recently. It's it's four to five months ago. I bought Cena Corporation. The holding company of uh, of the Chinese social media Weibo. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a, a a long analysis and evaluation of, of about it on my on my blog. Great. So, how's Junto Investments going? <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, how's Junto Investments going? So, what's your like? What was like your plan with Junto Investments, and you now how do you see it going around in the next couple of years? Uh, yeah, so I should probably mention why I started Junto. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, I I worked at a family office, a high uh, family office, as a portfolio manager, which mm-hmm. uh, was of course a, a dream job from when I was a when I was young, and uh, and I decided to to quit that job. And why did I do that? Um, you know, when when uh, the preconception before going into the financial industry is that you are very much independent and you can think for yourself. And I find out that that was really not true if you work directly in the industry. Uh, I, I always wondered about why, when I was younger, I always wondered about why Ben Graham and uh, and Buffett's father, Howard, advised Buffett to stay out of, out of the industry, to build a career outside of the financial industry. And when I got into it, I, I kind of knew why. Um, so, so that's why I quit. My my girlfriend and I's business 
were throwing off bigger cash flows and we, we didn't really reinvest it. So I decided just to invest my own capital. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I quit the job. And and then I, I, I thought that was the best way to to learn and, and build my uh, understanding of the markets and just right. write about it. So that's why right. I, I, I started Gento. It's always to write about my own thoughts and, or, and, uh, and investments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how it's, it's, it's going to develop. I just use it as a, a platform to put out my thoughts. All right. It's probably going to turn into a, a membership site with, with courses and, you know, the way to, to learn is to teach. What are some of the what are some of the big lessons that you've learned from investing in the market? Oh, you know, from paying your tuition to the market. Um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is um, is to stick with your philosophy. Right. And if and if you don't, it's gonna it's gonna bite your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you learn that? I learned it by by going into to trading and uh, and all those kind of things. I, I, I'm doing that and short selling. Mm-hmm. Short doing a uh, everyone should do a short sale once in their life <laughs> to see how miserable it really is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's still like the great ones like Jim Chainas and David Einhorn who are able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. If you if you if you're risk management. Yeah, if your risk management is is uh, in check, you can do it. But uh, I don't, I don't want to live that kind of life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they're always hedged. You know, like they're short Tesla, but then they all own convertibles and they all own stocks and they all own some amount yeah. of options just to hedge their position. Yeah. How do you determine your position sizing? So now Warren Buffett has this philosophy of where you know if you've got a good idea, you've got to put more into that position. And mm. now there are other people like Ben Graham himself and Peter Lynch who, who recommend that you stay diversified. So mm. whose idea do you follow? I follow Buffett's idea. You know, my, my, actually my, my favorite book is Fortune's Formula. Have you read it? No. It's a description of the Kelly criterion developed by John R. Kelly that determines what, uh, what position size you should uh, make in terms of what are the probabilities and the risk reward in the situation. So I very much follow my own intuition about probabilities and risk reward and I position size accordingly. Mm-hmm. So it means if I have a very high conviction, I'm not afraid to put 40 to 50% of the portfolio in that one stock. Right. It's very much like uh, Monish provides philosophy at the, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's capped at 10%. He follows, the same, he follows the same philosophy, but he's capped at 10%. He wouldn't go uh, above 10% for any precision size. Right. I'm more like, uh, I'm more like the traditional profit partnership. Right. Where he put, yeah, you know, he put uh, 40% in Coca-Cola in the 70s, I think. <laughs> he made a lot of money. Almost probably. later. I mean, in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, now his largest yeah. position is Apple. <laughs> so it's like yeah. 10% of his portfolio. New, new times, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your, out of curiosity, what's your largest position right now? My largest position is Senior Corporation, the Chinese oh. company I mentioned. Yeah. So that's your largest position right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I recently bought into GraphTech International, the, uh, the, the graphite electrodes producer that... Uh, 
that's just one of the uh, the prominent positions in in Provice Investment Fund. I followed his philosophy of uh, of being a shameless cloner. <laughs> Do you think, like you know, with all the hedge funds and with all the, you know the stock screeners and the various technological advancements from Ben Graham's time, do you still think like you know buying below earnings and buying below book value is still valid because a lot of the opportunities are arbitraged away because of the informational edge disappearing? Yeah, you know, um, I, I don't really like the way the the reputation that value investing has gotten over the years from uh, from various, you know, uh, since since factor investing became a thing. Um, value investing has pretty much gotten into buying low PE and PB stocks. And that, that, that's not the way to go about it. I'm, I don't really look at, at, at PE. You can only use it as a, as a, as a yard, a kind of yardstick. Um, but it says it says nothing about about how the the company will develop in terms of cash flows and uh, if it's growing or so I don't I don't really use you know uh, uh, ratios like that. But so do you at least use them to like you know weed out like the high multiple stocks? Sorry. So would you we I suppose would you like use it to weed out high multiple stocks or you know do you have like a p multiple yeah sure wouldn't pay above yeah sure there's no uh yeah there's no there's no shaming use in it as a uh as a filter right so is there like a p multiple that you'd pay maximum yeah that's it's probably about 25 to 30. so you wouldn't pay about 30 times earnings no never <laughs> <laughs> But but you know it, it it depends uh on on any single year and that's why PE is 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 not really a good metric unless you you know average it out over three to five years. Right. So you can you can have a, a, a company earning uh earning very little in any given year and it's it's the PE is about fifty or sixty, but it's not really the right picture mm-hmm. of the company. So I'm I'm going deeper than that. <laughs> I mean Nowadays, you know, nowadays the only thing that can separate you from the market is your expectations of a stock. So if you think differently about a stock yeah. in the market, then you've got a better idea. Yeah, that's very much true. And going back to short selling, have you ever short sold after those twenty? After your, you know, your little game of twenty no. stocks? Never. <laughs> no, and I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> this has been scarred for life. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as I said, it's good to experience these kind of things early in life. And to end the interview, just to wrap it up. So, what is what uh, if you had to give a uh, if you had to give three word, three pieces of advice to a value investor? What would they be? It would be to read widely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, develop multidisciplinarity. I don't really read much within the financial space. I read kind of around the financial space. I study a lot of history um, and psychology and, 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 and all those, all this mentality about building mental models so you can make better decisions in life. That would probably be my number one advice. The other advice would be to think independently. Never take any, uh, any advice from anyone else without you know, really grasping the situation first yourself, because if you, if it fails, right. uh, you wouldn't really know why it failed. You would just right. blame it on someone else, and, and it wouldn't be a learning experience. Because 
as an investor, you're going to fail a lot of times in life. I just mentioned a few ones. <laughs> and, uh, and if you don't know why, if you, don't, if you didn't 100% make that decision yourself, you're not going to learn from it. So that's probably a, a very remote, important thing. Uh, and the third thing would be to uh, invest for the long term. Forget all, all the short-term stuff. Invest for the long term. Especially if you're young. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. 100%. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Hey, guys. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. It's episode 100. And I've got Oliver Sung, a value investor from Denmark, who runs Junto Investments, an investment research blog, and is a value investor himself. He was previously a portfolio manager and later quit that to become an independent investor. And I hope you enjoy the show. We've talked about various things and I'm pretty sure you're going to learn a lot from this episode. So put on your seatbelts and let's go.